So perhaps you heard a little extra exuberance there in the line, I am free. We sang that at uh, Men's Adventure yesterday, and we were challenged and encouraged to not just sing, I am free, but to shout, I am free, because of what God has provided for us through Jesus Christ. So um, well done, Scott and Samuel and Carl. I'm sure you were shouting in the back, right, uh, out there in the foyer. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you missed Men's Adventure, you missed a great time. Uh, the preaching was excellent. First time I'd ever heard Toby preach, and he did a wonderful job. Um, I believe the messages are available on uh, the NF website, and if not, I think Central. I know that they were live streamed, so they should be available either one of those two places or maybe both Central Baptist Church of Binghamton. So if you want to catch up on what was uh, done in the main sessions, you can do that uh, through our uh, fellowship uh, opportunities. Uh, Nick, how's your mom doing? Okay, and 94, is that correct? 94 years old? Okay. Okay, and Ben doing okay with his recovery? Oh, he's hiding behind the screen back there. All right, very good. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and open our time together in a word of prayer here before we jump right into our text. We're going to do something a little different this morning. 
okay? Um, but uh, you'll look at the note page and say, well, that's kind of short for pastor. I, again, no promises there, all right? But let's ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we are so thankful to be here. We're thankful to sing songs of worship to you. We're thankful to be able to pray for one another um, as you have commanded us to do. And, and so, Lord, now as we continue on in our worship this morning, we open your word together, and we ask, Lord, that you will bless our time as we learn from yet another character of faith. Uh, Father, we've been studying these characters of faith, and they've been challenging us in our own faith that we would uh, try to measure up, if you will, uh, and be people of faith like these great examples were for us in the pages of Scripture. Uh, and Father, we thank you that they're not just made-up stories, make-believe. They are true-to-life stories that actually happened. Uh, and as we read them and study them, we are encouraged that a God who could do those things in those people's lives can do the same thing in our lives today. What a privilege, what a blessing it is to serve you, the one true God. And we ask, Lord, that as we uh, look this morning at another person of faith, that our faith would be encouraged and we would strive to be faithful to you as you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at our uh, note sheet and even the title of the sermon this morning, you'll see that it might not be something that sounds like I'm willing to step into that place. The title is Faith Lets Us Put Our Lives on the Line. Okay? Faith lets us put our lives on the line. Now, how many people have ever put their life on the line, even in our room this morning? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. I don't need to know that. How many times has your life been on the line? Um, you know, we could all probably tell stories where in at least our own thoughts and our own opinions, our life was on the line. Um, and yet we're still here today to tell the story. Uh, what does that say? It says that God is faithful, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think in our lives. And so this morning, uh, we're going to continue a study that we've kind of been, and it really wasn't going to be a study, but as I'm working through these things, I'm, I'm just encouraged by these characters, and so I'm keeping going with them, okay? Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at people of faith, and this morning, we're going to continue in that similar vein. We're going to consider a another holy character from the Old Testament. This character knew what it meant to be put into a difficult time and, and to be far away from home and your, your country and for the most part your family, people that you knew, people who supported you and loved you. And although times were difficult for this young person, they knew they were loved and that someone was looking out for them. Can I remind you of this, that, that you are never alone no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how alone and maybe afraid and desperate you might feel, you are never alone. Okay? And you say, Pastor, how do you know that? There's been lots of times in my life I look around and I'm the only one standing in the room. Well, just because you can't see the other person standing in the room doesn't mean he's not there. Because we've been told by God that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So even when you may be humanly alone, God is still with you. God is still there. And even if you're physically alone, you, you know that you're only, well, in our modern age, a text away from uh, lots of people going before the throne of God on your behalf. 
And, and so in that sense, you're not alone either. But our God is always there with us. You know, uh, you may be sitting here this morning and, and having lost someone that is very close to you. You're still not alone. Even though you feel lonely and, 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 and you know, kind of just, why God? Just look at God and think of all the amazing things he has done for you. Um, the individual that we're going to look at this morning is a reminder that our God is sovereign. As we look at this passage of scripture, and believe it or not, we're going to try to cover a whole book this morning. Okay? Uh, so you might say, well, so much for short notes. Uh, he must not just want us to write a lot down, but he's going to say a lot. Well, we'll see. Uh, that's all up to the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit leads us this morning. Uh, and ladies, you're going to be happy because we're going to look at a lady this morning, a lady of faith, somebody who we can look at and say, wow, there's not just men that are people of faith, but there are ladies who are people of faith. And as we look at this young lady, we will see that God used her in a mighty way. And can I tell you this? The word God is not mentioned in the book that we're going to study this morning. But his fingerprints, his handprints are all over the book of Esther. Okay, so as you uh, open up the book, you know, the Bible to the book of Esther, we're not going to read a particular passage this morning, but instead I'm going to tell you what um, the story of Esther is all about. So we're not going to look at every particular verse, but we're going to recount the highlights and then we're going to learn from Esther what we should learn from the pages of Scripture about our sovereign God. Our story this morning, the book of Esther, it, it opens with a royal party okay in fact it was more than a party it was a lavish feast and the king put on this feast for all those that had a position in the kingdom and at the same time as the king was hosting this feast for all the guys his wife Queen Vashti was also holding a feast for the women of importance in the kingdom and so this party, it had been going on for seven days. And during that seven-day period, the king calls to Queen Vashti and he says, I want you to come and I want you to parade yourself before my party. And Vashti was rather uncomfortable with that. I mean, after all, they'd been partying for several days. And, I mean, I've never been in that situation, but we can all imagine what kind of state those guys were in. And to have the queen come and parade herself in front of them could not have ended up in anything positive. So Vashti says, uh, no disrespect intended, King Xerxes, but I don't think I'm going to do what you ask me to do. Well, you can imagine what the king's response was to that. He's the most powerful man in the world because his kingdom is the most powerful kingdom in the world. And for his wife to say thanks but no thanks, he's not very happy. And then his advisors are chiming in, you know, probably also uh, not feeling any pain or really having any sensible thoughts going through their mind at this point in time they say well who does she think she is who can she, she can't tell the king no I mean after all you're the king if you say something she should do it so well what then Xerxes says should I do to my wife my queen well you should get rid of her don't let her be the queen anymore 
to depose her as the queen and send her away. So that's the decision that was made. The queen was deposed, and guess what that left? A queenless country. Now, as the king, you can't not have a queen. That's just kind of like somewhere written down in the rules. If you're the king of the country, you got to have a queen. And so they start searching for a queen. And really what this search resulted in was maybe the first ever beauty pageant. Okay? So all these women were invited to come and audition, if you will, for the position of queen. They were to pass before King Xerxes and he was to, to examine them and maybe even question them and, and narrow down the pool. And so he's doing all of these things and finally it's narrowed down and one of the ladies that was in the, in the pool that was left to be considered to be queen was this young lady by the name of Esther, a young Jewish girl. She never revealed her heritage during the tryouts, if you will, or the preliminaries, uh, and probably because she was never asked. She was then chosen to be the new queen. Can you imagine to be Esther, somebody who had lost her parents, uh, perhaps even in the battles and in the wars that resulted in her becoming uh, in exile in this kingdom. Lost her parents, uh, had an uncle who looked out for her, was, was caring for her and instructing her and helping her to learn the Jewish ways and about the God of the Jews. But this young lady becomes the queen of the most powerful land in all of the world. There was a celebration in honor of the new queen. Uh, and this celebration went on and on and on. As, as the celebration came to a close... There was a plot by some in the king's court to kill the king, to assassinate King Xerxes. And, and this guy named Mordecai was Esther's uncle. He, he, un, he finds out about the plot. And, and he goes and he says, hey, you guys need to know this. There's a couple people in the king's court that want to kill the king. And so the king examined and he did a, an investigation. And guess what? Mordecai was telling the truth. These two assassins were identified and they were taken care of and they were removed and the threat was, was done away with. And as a result, it was written down in the king's record. Mordecai saves the king's life. Written in the laws of the, of, of the people and it could not be changed. They closed up the book and they put it away and later on that's going to feature in our story. Okay, enter this man named Haman, a new man who comes into the story. He's promoted by the king and he's put in charge over all the other princes. And when he entered through the gate, everyone began to bow down before this Haman. And the king had commanded, bow down before him, give him honor, give him glory. Mordecai, though, the Jewish man who had saved the king's life, refuses to bow down before this man named Haman. And every time Haman walked through the gate, Mordecai stood tall. The only one, because everybody else was bowing down. Reminds you of anybody else? Three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the king in his image. So Mordecai said, I'm not going to bow down. I, I, I will not bow down to a mere man. 
I bow before my God and only before my God. I will only kneel before the God of heaven. People tried to convince Mordecai to bow down before this Haman whenever he walked through the gate. But Mordecai stood fast. He would not change his mind. He remained firm in his conviction to do what was right based on what he believed God wanted him to do. Haman got ticked off. Haman was so mad about Mordecai's refusal to bow down that he decided he would come up with a plan to eliminate Haman. Get rid of the troublemaker, if you will. And he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And so the plan was not to just eliminate Mordecai, but to exterminate the entire Jewish race. That's not too terribly unfamiliar, is it? It's something that has often been a plague on the Jewish nation, that people and nations hate them and want to get rid of them. Mordecai was a, man, was a Jew, and he stood proud, he stood tall, not in necessarily his Judaism, but in his covenant relationship with the one true God. So he refused to bow. Haman um, goes to the king and he's all upset because Mordecai won't bow. And so he goes to the king with this plan, this plan to eliminate this particular race, the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Now, Haman isn't quite honest or at least forthright with the king. He never told the king who the people were that he wanted to destroy. Instead, he describes them as a group of people dispersed throughout the realm who refused to obey the king or follow his laws. Now, you stop and think about that. Is that true? No, not necessarily. Yes, they wouldn't bow to Haman, but why did he have to bow before Haman anyway? He's not even the king. But anyway, he starts telling lies about the Jewish nation to soften up the king, to let the king think along the same lines as Haman is thinking. These, these wicked people, they don't obey the laws. They're lawless. Hmm. You ever think there's a time that you and I as followers of Christ could be considered lawless? Don't obey the laws of the land? Well, you know what? The only laws that we don't obey are laws that are contrary to the nature and character of our God. Otherwise, we obey the laws. But when we're told to disobey God, to obey the government, what's our choice? Same thing that Peter said, right? We ought to obey God rather than man. Our choice is to obey God. That's where Mordecai is. His choice is to obey God and not to obey man. So he told, Haman told the king that these different people would be better off for the kingdom and even for the king if these people were eliminated from the kingdom. And he suggested that the king make available, get this, 17 tons of silver to carry out this extermination plot. Now, Roughly speaking, 17 tons of silver today would come up to about $10,800,000. That's a lot of money. It doesn't matter what time it is, what year it is, what the season is. 
10 million, almost 11 million dollars is a lot of money. And guess what? The king gave Haman permission to carry out his plot. The king says, oh yes, absolutely, you take care of this problem, I don't have to worry about it then. The king's scribes wrote it down, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and then sent out the decree that stated on the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews everywhere to be, were to be put to death, regardless of their age or their gender or their status or their position. Uh-oh, that's a problem, okay? Especially for Esther. Mordecai and countless other Jews throughout the realm went into mourning. He even put on sackcloth and ashes and sat at the entrance to the king's gate. So every time Mordecai or Haman went by Mordecai, guess what he saw? He saw somebody sitting in sackcloth and ashes in mourning. That wasn't acceptable at the time. Esther heard that her uncle sat in, in sackcloth and ashes. And so what does she do? Well, she's got to figure out a solution, right? So she sends clothes out to Mordecai and with the instructions... Please put these clothes on and get rid of the sackcloths and the ashes. We don't want people to see that you're mourning. But Mordecai would not change his clothes. She sent, him, uh, she sent her own very personal servant to Mordecai to find out what's going on. Why the mourning? Why are you so sad? Word came back to her about the law that Haman got the king to sign. And he wanted, Mordecai wanted Esther to go in before the king and to plead for her fellow Jewish people. You understand that if the Jews were killed, people were going to find out that Esther was a Jew. She wasn't going to be able to slide under the radar. Okay? Um, she told him that she couldn't because the king had not called for her in quite some time. And if she went into his presence without being called for, she could actually be put to death. Now we know that just because you're queen, it, it really doesn't have any special position or favor in King Xerxes' mind, right? Because he's already gotten rid of one queen. If you do something that he doesn't like, he has no problems of getting rid of you. So she says, Mordecai, you don't understand. I cannot do this because if I do, I might die. Mordecai said, Esther... Don't think that you will escape this death sentence upon the Jewish people. You may have been put in the king's court, say it with me, for such a time as this. What does that remind us of? It reminds us of the fact that God is sovereign. Things don't happen by chance or by circumstance. They happen because God is in control. Esther, you have been placed in the king's court for such a time as this. Then Esther said to Mordecai, Okay, okay, you spread the word. You tell all the Jewish people that I am going to go and present myself to the king. You guys and I will pray, we will fast for three days. We will storm the gates of heaven. We will ask God to give us grace and to give us favor and to provide for us in our hour of need. And then when I go and present myself to the king, if he doesn't call for me, he doesn't call for me. And then those other famous words from the book of Esther, if I perish, I perish. If it is God's will for me to die, then so be it. 
but I will do what I believe God wants me to do. In other words, I will act in faith and obedience. You can't have faith without obedience. They too go hand in hand. All right. So Esther has made up her mind. She's decided if I perish, I perish. Three days later, she approaches the king. And it's the moment of truth. You know, the king is sitting in his chair, and if he doesn't raise his scepter, that's it for Esther. She's done. She cries out to the king, oh king, and the king, is that, is that Esther? Is that my queen? He raises the scepter. And Esther goes in before the king, and they have this conversation. The king wants to know, what is it that you need, my dear? What can I give you? What can I provide for you? You ask, and nothing's too big. I will give it to you. She says to the king, oh, king, would you please, would you please come to a banquet that I want to prepare for you? Well, we already know that the king likes to eat, right? Because he's had a seven-day feast, all right? So the way to a man's heart is through his what? Stomach, okay? Uh, I guess that's not a new thing, right? So Esther knows this about the king, and so she says, Would you please come to a banquet that I'm going to provide for you? And, and I just have one other thing to ask of you. Please, king, would you bring Haman with you? And we might scratch our head and wonder, why in the world would you bring Haman? He's the one who wants to kill you. Oh, sure, I can bring Haman. We're close. We're friends. Yeah, I'll bring Haman with me. So she, she prepares the banquet, and the, the king and Haman come in, and she feeds them, and she feeds them, and she feeds them, and they're having a great feast. They're having a great time. They're loving all the food. And, and then she, the king says, by the way, queen, what is it that you want? I'm prepared to give it to you. You tell me what you want. She says, oh, king, live forever. Would you? Would you please come to another banquet tomorrow night? Another feast that I will prepare for you and bring Haman with you again. And then I will tell you what it is that I want. Absolutely, my queen. Of course, you make the same kind of food you made tonight. I'll be here again. And so will Haman. Meanwhile, every time Haman goes in and out, Mordecai is not bowing down to, King, or to, to Haman. He's getting more and more frustrated. He's getting madder and madder and madder. Um, and then, that night, talk about the sovereignty of God. The king is going to bed, and he can't sleep. And, and sleep runs away from him, the text tells us. And all of a sudden, he decides, I wonder why I can't sleep. Bring my books, the books of the king. Bring them before me. I want to read through them. Maybe I'm missing something in my reign here. i got to figure it out. Bring those books. So he opens up the books, and he's reading. And guess where he's reading from? He's reading from the time when Mordecai reported the assassination plot and they, they found out the men and they executed the men who wanted to kill the king. And then the king, a light bulb, bing! I wonder, has anything ever been done for this man Mordecai? This great servant of the king. This one who saved the life of King Xerxes. Anything ever been done for that man? 
He walks in the next morning, checks things out. Nope, nothing's ever been done for Mordecai. And so the king begins to think, how can I honor this man? What can I do to say how much I appreciate him? Hey, is there anybody out there, any of my advisors in the king's court? Yes, O king, uh, uh, Haman is out here in the king's court. Send him in. I need to talk to this man, Haman. I I need to have some advice come from him. So in comes Haman, and, 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 and King Xerxes says, Haman, here's my question for you. We're starting the day off with this thought. What should be done to the man whom the king desires to honor? So Haman didn't have a problem thinking highly of himself. That's why he was so frustrated when Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And so Mort- Haman thinks, oh, the king's talking about me. Oh, what a great king. He wants to honor me. So in his mind, he's thinking, what do I want the king to do for me? I got it, O king. This is what you do. You take one of your horses that you have ridden. Nobody else gets to ride the king's horses, right? You take one of your horses that you have ridden upon. And you take one of your robes, one of your royal robes that you wear when you sit on the throne. And you you put that on the man who you want to honor. And then you parade this man through the streets of the capital and you cry out, you have somebody cry out before him, this is what is done to the man who the king desires to honor. And you can almost see that Haman's head is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he's telling the king what should be done. And the king says, great ideas, I really like them. Do this for Mordecai. Uh, say what? Do this for Mordecai. I don't know if the king knows what's going on between Mordecai and Haman. I don't think he does. But Mordecai has caused great consternation for Haman. He's told his wife all about it. He's told his friends all about it. So that's how they came up with this plot to build these gallows to hang Mordecai on. And now, more, and, and, and just one more little bit of salt in the wound. The king says, Haman, you're the one to lead Mordecai around the town on the horse in the king's robe, crying out, this is a great man. This is what the king does to men he wants to honor. You think you had a bad day? Put yourself in Haman's shoes at this point. Haman is beside himself. He can't believe what has just happened. He is so frustrated. He goes home. He's pouting. He's crying. He's, he's complaining to his wife. I can't believe this happened. You, you'll never believe it. And then she, he's got to go to a banquet with Esther and the king. So he's in no frame of mind really to be Uh, hobnobbing with the king and his wife. But anyway, he's got to go. So they bring Haman and they bring the king into the banquet. And again, it's a a feast. It's great food. It's it's everything that they could want. Um, And then uh, the king says, Now my queen, please tell me what it is that you want. Oh, king, live forever. There is a man in the country, in the kingdom, in your realm, who wants to wipe out my people, who wants to destroy all of my people, my heritage. He's lied about us. He wants 
all of them to be put to death. Now the king doesn't want to lose his queen. Who is this vile man? Who is this person who wants to wipe out your people, O queen? Can you imagine Mordecai or Haman? He's like, oh, no, 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 please, please, don't, 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 don't. It's this vile Haman. He's the man. He's the one who wants to kill us. And Xerxes, he's now, he's ticked. He storms out. He walks out onto his balcony, and he's trying to figure, what am I going to do with my number one advisor who wants to kill my queen and all of her people? What do I do? And Esther has sat down on her couch, and Haman has fallen down on her lap, pleading for forgiveness, for leniency. Please tell the king that it was a mistake. We're not going to do it. But you see, when it's written in the king and sealed with the king's signet ring, it's got to happen. Can't change it. So Xerxes walks back in and hears Haman with his head in the lap of the queen. What's going on now? So he takes Haman custody and he says, you don't do that to my queen. You don't treat her that way. And so Esther shares the rest of the story of all the plots and all the scheming and all the things that were done, going to be done to destroy and wipe out the Jewish nation. And he says, she says, here's my request, O king. Knowing that they can't change the law, right? It can't be changed. Here's my request, O king. Would you let the Jewish people defend themselves? Protect themselves from the attack, from the onslaught? Of course, of course. And you know what happens? Haman gets hung, hanged I should say, on the gallows that were built for him. These gallows were not small, insignificant, little gallows. They were massively built tall. So that everybody would see Mordecai hanging from the gallows. And so the very gallows that Mordecai was to hang on, Haman and his sons were hanged from those gallows. You say, oh, that's awful. No, that's good. That's good. Say, Pastor, how can you be so uh, morbid? How are those pe-? No, these people were attacking God's people. These people were out to destroy the people of God. And God in his sovereignty saved them, protected them. Why did God protect them? Because he ain't done with them yet. Why did they fail in, in, in World War, was it two, where they tried to wipe out all the Jews, the Nazis after the Jews? Why did they fail? Because God isn't finished with them yet. How do we know that? Because they've never had all the promises fulfilled to them that have made, been made to them by God. God can't let them stop being a nation until he fulfills all those promises. Why? Because God's very nature and character is on the line. He made promises, and if they aren't kept, he can't be God anymore. But can I tell you this? Our God is in control. Our God is alive, he's well, he's on the throne, he hasn't abdicated it. And you know what? The things that are going on in your life, whatever they might be, can I tell you, God is still in control.
He hasn't abdicated the throne in your life either. As we continue through the book of Esther, we're towards the end of the book now. And on the day that was scheduled for the attack and the day following, the Jews put to death more than 75,000 of their enemies. Including Haman and his ten sons. And then, after that was all done, Mordecai was promoted to take Haman's place. Is there justice in the world? Absolutely. Is God in control? Absolutely. Esther's family was given the estate of Haman. Wow. Justice indeed prevailed in the land. So there's some things that we can learn from the book of Esther. And what I've shared with you is a brief summary of the book. There's some lessons that we want to learn and things that we can put into practice in our lives today. First of all, in, Gen- in, in Esther chapters 1 and 2, we see this, that God will always accomplish his purpose. God will always accomplish his, pur- his purpose. We see this in the way that Esther rose to be the queen. Esther never in her wildest dreams would have imagined she would become queen of the most powerful nation in the world. She never imagined that she would become the wife of King Artaxerxes. And yet God in his sovereignty, God in his control, worked out the circumstances, not by chance, but by the sovereign hand of God, for Esther to become queen. Why? Because God was going to use this young woman to save his people, so he raised her up to that very place. God will always, and you can put four or five more always in there if you want. God will always, always, always accomplish his purpose. Why? Because he is the sovereign God of the world. He had no beginning. He has no end. He has planned your life out the way he wants it to be. And if you trust him, his purpose will be accomplished in your life. The next thing we see in our, in our story of Esther is that God can override the attempts of men to preserve his purpose. God will over, God can override the attempts of men to preserve his purpose. There is no man, no matter what his title is, that can prevent God's will from being done in the, in the life of a child of God, in the nation, in anyone. God will always accomplish his purpose, and man cannot override God's purpose. Man can enact their own plans, and they can hope to accomplish their desires, but it is important for you and I to remember that no plan of man will ever undermine or stop God's plan for his people. This in part goes to the purpose of the book of Esther. Those exiles who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the wall were facing difficult times. That's the rebuilding of the wall, rebuilding of the temple had already happened by the time Esther happens. Okay, Can you imagine what's going to happen if they're all going to be put to easy pickings? Fish in a barrel. They're all, all the people that are in Jerusalem, they're Jews, are going to be put to death. God promised that that would not happen. That the wall would be built. 
that the temple would be built and that the people would regather and they would worship in that temple and they would safely dwell behind those walls. God is faithful. This, this purpose for the book of Esther reminds us that our God is in control. When they heard how God was working on their behalf, on those who were still living in the land of Persia, it had to bring them great comfort and great joy. God is still in control. He's in control of the capital of the world. One thing that is certain that we learn from the book of Esther is the fact that God, the God of Esther is also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the sovereign God who is not surprised by anything and is able to carry out his plan in the life of his children. And you know what? He's not only the God of Esther, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and, and Joseph, and Daniel. He's our God too. And if he's sovereign then, he's sovereign now. Our God remains on his throne. The third thing we see from the book of Esther, we find it scattered throughout uh, chapters 3 through 10. We read, or we're not going to read, but we see that God honors the actions of his children when they are obedient. Can you read that with me, number three? God honors the actions of his children when they are what? When they are obedient. I had a conversation this week with somebody who, uh, they're struggling, they're having a hard time. And I, and I reminded this individual that if you want God's blessing in your life, you have to be obedient to God. God cannot bless you if you're disobeying Him. He can't. Because He is holy, He is just, He is righteous. If you want his blessing, you must be obedient to his commands. We see in the book of Esther that Mordecai was obedient to the commands of God. And Mordecai encouraged Esther to be obedient, to stand up for the people of God. This whole idea centers around Mordecai and Haman. Whatever reasons Mordecai had for not bowing to Haman, most likely those reasons were because he would only bow to the one true God. This has now thrust the whole Jewish nation into jeopardy. Facing desperation, the Jews call on Jehovah. Have you ever been in a desperate time? Have you ever been in a desperate situation? You have two choices. I think the theme for our weekend at, at Men's Adventure was the idea of passivity. You can either be passive or you can be active. God's called us to be active, to trust him, to, wait, to do what he wants us to do, to do those things that we know are obedient. In one of the workshops, uh, Doug Foreman asked, what's, a, what's one way to overcome passivity? And the guy said, and I loved it, I was almost said, I teach my children how do the what? Do the next right thing. Thing. Do the next. I might not know what to do five or six steps down the line, but God has always given me the next right thing to do. And for me to be faithful to God means that I must do the next right thing. Once I do that next right thing, He's going to reveal to me the next right thing, and the next right thing, and the next right thing. 
God honors the actions of his children when they are obedient. We see it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Mordecai mourns and he demonstrates remorse. His reaction was a common response to this kind of predicament. David mourned and put on sackcloth in in the Psalms. Job adorned himself with sackcloth as a result of his troubles. I mean, look at the life of Job. Was it easy? It was before we meet him in the pages of Scripture, but in the very first chapter of the book of Job, his life starts to unravel. And there is not an easy day in Job's life from from that point on until the end of the book. Job put on sackcloth and ashes, but... He rejoiced in his troubles. Ahab, of all people, put on sackcloth when Elijah told him he was the enemy of the Lord. Sackcloth showed remorse. Sackcloth showed an individual was seeking after God for deliverance. Maybe not in Ahab's case, because I don't think he ever sought after God. But at least it was an external, hey, I want to know what God wants. You see, Mordecai looked at the situation and he was remorseful. He demonstrated his remorse by humbling, him, humbling himself before Almighty God and seeking God to act on his behalf. In verses 4, 4 through 14 in chapter 4, we see that Esther was distressed because Mordecai was mourning. Here she is, she's the queen. Her uncle is now has the potential of dragging her down making her look bad, perhaps even losing her position. So she says to Mordecai, you need to put on regular clothes. You're going to cause me trouble. You're going to cause me grief. Mordecai says, no, I can't. I can't. I have to do what is right. Mordecai did not change his mind, even though Esther tried to persuade him to do that. And when he explained the seriousness of the situation, Esther understood she couldn't ask him to go against his convictions. She couldn't ask him to do something that was wrong. So what does she do? She sought direction from God and then determined to do the next right thing. That's what Esther did. And, and you might say to me, Pastor, I don't know what the next right thing is. Then follow Esther's example. What do you do? You pray. You ask God. What does James say in James chapter 1? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and reproaches them not. If you don't know what the next right thing is to do, get down before Almighty God and ask Him for wisdom. Ask him for direction. He will give that wisdom to you. He promised he would. We also see that Esther determines to approach the king on behalf of her people. And when we're talking about her people, we're not talking about the people of Persia. Those are not really her people. She's talking about the people of Israel, the Jewish people. She goes before the king and she asks on their behalf for protection, provision, and for deliverance. At first, she seems resistant to doing this, and, and Mordecai reminds her that God could easily, very easily raise up deliverance from another source. God doesn't, here's the reminder, God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me to accomplish his plan. When he uses you and when he uses me, 
It is our privilege. It is our joy. It is our blessing to be used by the hand of God. But he doesn't need us. And Mordecai, I told Esther, God doesn't need you. He can raise somebody else up to deliver his people. He will deliver his people. How did, that, how did Mordecai know that? Because he looked at all the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. And he understood that they had not been yet fulfilled. And he understood the very character and the very testimony of God was at stake. And God will never, ever, ever act contrary to his nature and character. So he said, God will deliver the nation of Israel from this plot. You can choose to let him use you or somebody else. Same holds true for us today. We can be choose to be used by God to accomplish His will, His means, His purposes in our lives, in Calvary Baptist Church, in Preble, in the surrounding areas. We can be used by God to accomplish what God wants to do in and through us, or we can let somebody else have the blessing. That's really what we learn from the book of Esther. Here's, here's what he says in verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Ooh, that's her uncle talking to her. Okay? Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She listened, you know... Can we ask ourselves this question? Did God put us here in this world on February 19th, 2023 for such a time as this? I don't know what the time is. But as we seek God's leadership and direction, we will understand what the time is. God has put us here for this time. She told Mordecai to rally the Jews in support of her determination to go before the king. She asked the Jews in Susa to fast for three days. And she would also fast and then go into the king. Listen to the explanation regarding this fast uh, from the Nelson Study Bible. It says this, Esther agreed to intervene with the king on behalf of her people. The fasting for three days implies a period of earnestly seeking God in prayer at this critical juncture. But even at this point, the narrator did not use the name of God. Something that is most remarkable. Esther was also looking for support of the Jewish community by asking them to join in this fast. Esther understood fully that she was breaking the law of the land and that she might have to suffer the ultimate consequence. She might perish. She might die. But what an example for the people of that day, the people that were in her immediate sphere of influence. And what an example for us today. No matter who you are, a student, an adult, a pastor, someone who's retired, someone who stays at home, cares for your children, it does not matter who you are. We need to choose to do the right thing and to allow God to use us as he sees fit. And let the outcomes fall under his control. Why? Because he's sovereign. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 3, we see that the Lord grants deliverance. 
The Lord grants deliverance to his people. The first form of deliverance comes for Esther when she's granted access to the king. She wasn't guaranteed access, but she was granted access. This is the beginning of God opening doors for Esther to be used in the plan of deliverance. Can I tell you this? If you, open, if you walk through the open door that God gives to you, he's going to continue opening doors. If Esther would have said, nope, not going to do it, the rest of the doors wouldn't have opened. But she said, okay, I'm going to do this. Let's pray about it. Let's ask God. Let's seek God. And let's do the next right thing. And she did. And the king raised his scepter. We see that Esther develops a plan, probably as a result of the intense three days of prayer and fasting, in which she will present this need before the king, and she will trust God to work in the king's heart to bring about the plan. She knew the king and enticed him a little bit with a couple of feasts. At the second feast, she presented the possible destruction of her people and revealed Haman's sinister plot before her. The king could not change the law. That's the, the law of the Medes and Persian. Once it's signed into law, cannot be changed. But instead, he granted the Jews the opportunity to arm themselves and defend themselves. And in so doing, they brought a great destruction over their enemies. 75,000 of them, as we mentioned. The Lord was at work preserving his children because he has a plan for them. Has not yet been realized. Would you agree with me that the God of the Israelite nation is an awesome God? And if that God, the God of the Israelite nation, is awesome for them, he's also awesome for us. In his deliverance, God granted promotions and property as blessings to his followers, Mordecai and Esther primarily. God was able to bless them because why? They were obedient. They did what they knew God wanted them to do. We see Mordecai's actions demonstrated repentance, and then both he and Esther sought God through prayer and fasting. What a wonderful God we have. A God who hears, a God who responds, a powerful God who casts his merciful shadow over his children. And even though God is never mentioned in the book of the Esther, He's all throughout this book. You can't miss him. The same is true in our lives. As we submit to his ways in our lives, we can seek his hand of protection and provision, and, and we know that he will grant it according to his will for us. It truly is comforting to know that you and I have a great God. He's not hindered by the affairs of this world. We look around us and we say, oh man, it's so bad right now. We don't like what's going on in our world. We don't like policies and principles and even laws that are coming into... They don't stop God. They don't, they don't tie God's hands. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God will still have his will done in our lives. I was getting ready for church this morning and this song came on the radio and I thought, what a great way to end the message. The song by Natalie Grant. I try to fix you in the walls inside my mind. I try to keep you safely in between the lines. I try to put you in the box that I've designed. I try to pull you down so we're eye to eye. Then she asked a question in the chorus. When did I forget that you are the king of the world? 
I tried to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Just the whisper of your voice can tame the seas. So who am I to try and take the lead? Still, I will run ahead and think I'm strong enough when you're the one who made me from the dust. How could I make you so small? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. Oh, you've set it all in motion every single moment. You brought it all to be, and you're holding on to me. We don't need to forget that he's the king of the world. We should remember that he is indeed the sovereign king of the world. She closes off the song with this. How could I make you so small? When you are the one who holds it all, when did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? You will always be the king of the world. God, we come before you this morning, the king of the world. What a great God you are. And yet sometimes we think that we need to be in charge. We need to be in control of our lives and in our situation. As we've worked through the story of Esther this morning, we did not see them put you in a box. We did not see them make you small. Instead, we saw them seek you out, seek your direction, seek your will, seek your wisdom, and then be obedient to your plan, your commands, your desires for us. Father, if we're going to let you be the king of the world, we need to be obedient to you. So we would ask that you'd help us as we leave this place this morning to be mindful of the fact that you are indeed the king of the world and allow you to be the king of our lives as well. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for the fact that you are sovereign and in control and nothing will ever thwart your plan for us, for this world, for your church. What great comfort it is to be reminded of these truths and then to put them in the context of Jesus' conversation with his disciples where he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, cannot prevail against it. Thank you, God, for who you are and for your promises to build your church. As you build your church, you're building Calvary Baptist Church of Preble. And we're thankful to be part of that building project. Help us to submit to your plans and your will for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark's going to come and lead us.